Alright everyone, hey, how are you doing? Hope everyone's doing well out there. This is Black Clock Audio Tales, and we are here to tell you ghost stories, spooky stories, folklore, gothic horror, weird fiction, and more. So, how are you doing? Uh, we are in week three of Poe, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and as always, Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by FoundItemClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm with bunny slippers. They've got those Dino Sound slippers. They've got soft plush uppers and firm foam bottoms that grip and don't slip. Make Dino Sounds every three steps. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't lose your feet to frostbite. And eat vitamin C or you'll get scurvy. And listen to PGTTCM, our Cthulhu show that is the end of the month, every month. This month, we're going to have some Ken Height. We're going to have some Scott Glancy. Maybe we'll have some Andrew Migliori. I don't know. We'll probably have some David Heath. And of course, we'll have me, your host, D.B. Spitzer. Thank you again so much for listening to People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of this Podcast. Articulate warbling, and sooner than later, Dave's underground goat shenanigans. All produced through Badger Strip Studio here in glorious Portland, Oregon. Give us five stars if you like the show. Let us know, give us a review, or you can always donate money through some sort of patron scheme through podbean.com. Go to pgttcm.podbean.com. Click the donate button and learn how, or go to pgttcm.com and learn how to be a patron by clicking on the patron button. We're on social media, Facebook, MySpace, no, we're not on MySpace, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Facebook and Instagram mostly is where you're going to get the cool, fresh news, and Twitter if you just kind of want like a little repeater of the RSS feed. Thank you again so much, and here we go with Edgar Allan Poe, Week 3, Book 3, The Raven Works Collection, Collected, Collection, Collected. Edgar Allan Poe. Recording by Ernst Patinama. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Introductory Note Upon my return to the United States a few months ago, after the extraordinary series of adventure in the South Seas and elsewhere, of which an account is given in the following pages, accident threw me into the society of several gentlemen in Richmond, Virginia, who felt deep interest in all matters relating to the regions I had visited, and who were constantly urging it upon me as a duty to give my narrative to the public. I had several reasons, however, for declining to do so, some of which were of a nature altogether private and concern no person but myself, others not so much so. One consideration which deterred me was that, having kept no journal during a greater portion of the time in which I was absent, I feared I should not be able to write from mere memory a statement so minute and connected as to have the appearance of that truth it would really possess, 
barring only the natural and unavoidable exaggeration to which all of us are prone when detailing events which have had powerful influence in exciting the imaginative faculties another reason was that the incidents to be narrated were of a nature so positively marvellous that unsupported as my assertions must necessarily be except by the evidence of a single individual and he a half-breed indian i could only hope for belief among my family and those of my friends who have had reason through life to put faith in my veracity the probability being that the public at large would regard what i should put forth as merely an impudent and ingenious fiction a distrust in my own abilities as a writer was nevertheless one of the principal causes which prevented me from complying with the suggestions of my advisers among those gentlemen in virginia who expressed the greatest interest in my statement more particularly in regard to that portion of it which related to the antarctic ocean was mr poe lately editor of the southern literary messenger a monthly magazine published by mr thomas w white in the city of richmond he strongly advised me among others to prepare at once a full account of what i had seen and undergone and trust to the shrewdness and common sense of the public insisting with great plausibility that however roughly as regards my authorship my book should be got up its very uncouthness if there were any would give it all the better chance of being received as truth notwithstanding this representation i did not make up my mind to do as he suggested he afterward proposed finding that i would not stir in the matter that i should allow him to draw up in his own words a narrative of the earlier portion of my adventures from facts afforded by myself publishing it in the southern messenger under the garb of fiction to this receiving no objection i consented stipulating only that my real name should be retained two numbers of the pretended fiction appeared consequently in the messenger for january and february eighteen thirty seven and in order that it might certainly be regarded as fiction the name of mr poe was affixed to the articles in the table of contents of the magazine the manner in which this ruse was received has induced me at length to undertake a regular compilation and publication of the adventures in question for i found that in spite of the air of fable which had been so ingeniously thrown around that portion of my statement which appeared in a messenger without altering or distorting a single fact the public was still not at all disposed to receive it as fable and several letters were sent to mr p s address distinctly expressing a conviction to the contrary i thence concluded that the facts of my narrative would prove of such a nature as to carry with them sufficient evidence of their own authenticity and that i had consequently little to fear on the score of popular incredulity this expose being made it will be seen at once how much of what follows i claim to be my own writing and it will also be understood that no fact is misrepresented in the first few pages which were written by mr poe
even to those readers who have not seen the messenger it will be unnecessary to point out where his portion ends and my own commences the difference in point of style will be readily perceived a g pym end of section one recording by ernst patinama org the works of edgar allan poe raven edition volume three by edgar allan poe narrative of a gordon pym chapter one my name is arthur gordon pym my father was a respectable trader in sea stores at Nantucket, where i was born my maternal grandfather was an attorney in good practice he was fortunate in everything and had speculated very successfully in stocks of the edgerton new bank as it was formerly called by these and other means he had managed to lay by a tolerable sum of money he was more attached to myself i believe than to any other person in the world and i expected to inherit the most of his property at his death he sent me at six years of age to the school of old mr ricketts a gentleman with only one arm and of eccentric manners he is well known to almost every person who has visited new bedford i stayed at his school until i was sixteen when i left him for mr e ronald's academy on the hill here i became intimate with the son of mr bernard a sea captain who generally sailed in the employ of lloyd and vetterberg mr bernard is also very well known in new bedford and has many relations i am certain in edgerton his son was named augustus and he was nearly two years older than myself he had been on a whaling voyage with his father in the john donaldson and was always talking to me of his adventures in the south pacific ocean i used frequently to go home with him and remain all day sometimes all night we occupied the same bed and he would be sure to keep me awake until almost light telling me stories of the natives of the island of trinian and other places he had visited in his travels at last i could not help being interested in what he said and by degrees i felt the greatest desire to go to sea i owned a sailboat called the ariel and worth about seventy-five dollars she had a half-deck or cuddy and was rigged sloop fashion i forget her tonnage but she would hold ten persons without much crowding in this boat we were in the habit of going around some of the maddest freaks in the world and when i now think of them it appears to me a thousand wonders that i am alive today. i will relate one of these adventures by way of introduction to a longer and more momentous narrative one night there was a party at mr bernard's and both augustus and myself were not a little intoxicated towards the close of it as usual in such cases i took part of his bed in preference to going home he went to sleep as i thought very quietly it being near one when the party broke up and without saying a word on his favorite topic it might have been half an hour from the time of our getting in bed and i was just about falling into a doze when he suddenly started up and swore with a terrible oath that he would not go to sleep for any arthur pym in christendom when there was so glorious a breeze from the southwest i never was so astonished in my life not knowing what he intended and thinking that the wines and liquors he had drunk had set him entirely beside himself he proceeded to talk very coolly however saying he knew that i supposed him intoxicated but that he was never more sober in his life he was only tired he added of lying in bed on such a fine night like a dog and was determined to get up and dress and go out on a frolic with the boat i can hardly tell what possessed me but the words were no sooner out of his mouth than i felt the thrill of the greatest excitement and pleasure and thought his mad idea one of the most delightful and most reasonable things in the world it was blowing almost a gale and the weather was very cold it being late in october I sprang out of bed, nonetheless, in a kind of ecstasy, and told him I was quite as brave as himself, and quite as tired as he was of lying in bed like a dog, 
and quite as ready for any fun or frolic as any Augustus Bernard in Nantucket. We lost no time in getting on our clothes and hurrying down to the boat. She was lying at the old decayed wharf by the lumberyard of Pankey and Company, and was almost thumping her side out against the rough logs. Augustus got into her and bailed her, for she was nearly half full of water. This being done, we hosted Jim and Mainsail, kept full, and started boldly out to sea. The wind, as I before said, blew freshly from the southwest. The night was very clear and cold. Augustus had taken the helm, and I stationed myself by the mast on the deck of the cuddy. We flew along at a great rate, neither of us having said a word since casting loose from the wharf. I now asked my companion what course he intended to steer, and what time he thought it probable we should get back. He whistled for a few minutes, and then said crustily, I am going to sea. You may go home if you think proper. Turning my eyes upon him, I perceived at once that, in spite of his assumed nonchalance, he was greatly agitated. I could see him distinctly by the light of the moon. His face was paler than any marble, and his hand shook so excessively that he could scarcely retain hold of the tiller. I found that something had gone wrong, and became seriously alarmed. At this period I knew little about the management of a boat, and was now depending entirely upon the nautical skill of my friend. The wind, too, had suddenly increased, as we were fast getting out of the lee of the land. Still, I was ashamed to betray any trepidation, and for almost half an hour maintained a resolute silence. I could stand it no longer, however, and spoke to Augustus about the propriety of turning back. As before, it was nearly a minute before he made answer, or took any notice of my suggestion. By and by, said he at length, time enough, home by and by. I had expected a similar reply, but there was something in the tone of these words that filled me with an indescribable feeling of dread. I again looked at the speaker attentively. His lips were perfectly livid, and his knees shook so violently together that he seemed scarcely able to stand. For God's sake, Augustus, I screamed, now heartily frightened. What ails you? What is the matter? What are you going to do? Matter? He stammered, in the greatest apparent surprise, letting go the tiller at the same moment, and falling forward into the bottom of the boat. Ma matter? But why, why nothing is the matter. Going home. Don't you see? The whole truth now flashed upon me. I flew to him and raised him up. He was drunk. Beastly drunk. He could no longer either stand, speak, or see. His eyes were perfectly glazed, and as I let him go in the extremity of my despair, he rolled like a mere log into the bilge water, from which I had lifted him. It was evident that, during the evening, he had drunk far more than I suspected, and that his conduct in bed had been the result of a highly concentrated state of intoxication, a state which, like madness, frequently enables the victim to imitate the outward demeanor of one in perfect possession of his senses. The coolness of the night air, however, had had its usual effect. The mental energy began to yield before its influence, and the confused perception which he no doubt then had of his perilous situation had assisted in hastening the catastrophe. He was now thoroughly insensible, and there was no probability that he would be otherwise for many hours. It is hardly possible to conceive the extremity of my terror. The fumes of the wine lately taken had evaporated, leaving me doubly timid and irresolute. I knew that I was altogether incapable of managing the boat, and that a fierce wind and strong ebb tide were hurrying us to destruction. A storm was evidently gathering behind us. We had neither compass nor provisions, and it was clear that, if we held our present course, we should be out of sight of land before daybreak. These thoughts, with a crowd of others equally fearful, flashed through my mind with a bewildering rapidity, and for some moments paralyzed me beyond the possibility of making any exertion. The boat was going through the water at a terrible rate, full before the wind, no reef in either jib or mainsail, running her bows completely under the foam. 
it was a thousand wonders she did not broach too. Augustus having let go the tiller, as I said before, and I being too much agitated to think of taking it myself. By good luck, however, she kept steady, and gradually I recovered some degree of presence of mind. Still, the wind was increasing fearfully, and whenever we rose from a plunge forward, the sea behind fell combing over our counter and deluged us with water. I was so utterly benumbed, too, in every limb, as to be nearly unconscious of sensation. At length I summoned up the resolution of despair, and rushing to the mainsail let it go by the run. As might have been expected, it flew over the bows, and, getting drenched with the water, carried away the mast short off by the board. This latter accident alone saved me from instant destruction. Under the jib only, I now boomed along before the wind, shipping heavy seas occasionally over the counter, but relieved from the terror of immediate death. I took the helm, and breathed with greater freedom as I found that there yet remained in us a chance of ultimate escape. Augustus still lay senseless in the bottom of the boat, and as there was imminent danger of his drowning, the water being nearly a foot deep just where he fell, I contrived to raise him partially up, and keep him in a sitting position by passing a rope round his waist and lashing it to a ring-bolt in the deck of the cuddy. Having thus arranged everything as well as I could in my chilled and agitated condition, I recommended myself to God, and made up my mind to bear whatever might happen with all the fortitude in my power. Hardly had I come to this resolution, when, suddenly, a loud and long scream, or yell, as if from the throats of a thousand demons, seemed to pervade the whole atmosphere around and above the boat. Never while I live shall I forget the intense agony of terror I experienced at that moment. My hair stood erect on my head. I felt the blood congealing in my veins. My heart ceased utterly to beat. And without having once raised my eyes to learn the source of my alarm, I tumbled headlong and insensible upon the body of my fallen companion. I found myself, upon reviving, in the cabin of a large whaling ship, the Penguin, bound to Nantucket. Several persons were standing over me, and Augustus, paler than death, was busily occupied in chafing my hands. Upon seeing me open my eyes, his exclamations of gratitude and joy excited alternate laughter and tears from the rough-looking personages who were present. The mystery of our being in existence was now soon explained. We had been run down by the whaling ship, which was close-hauled, beating up to Nantucket with every sail she could venture to set, and consequently running almost at right angles to our own course. Several men were on the lookout forward, but did not perceive our boat till it was an impossibility to avoid coming in contact. Their shouts of warning upon seeing us were what had so terribly alarmed me. The huge ship, I was told, rode immediately over us with as much ease as our own little vessel would have passed over a feather, and without the least perceptible impediment to her progress. Not a scream arose from the deck of the victim. There was a slight grating sound to be heard mingling with the roar of wind and water, as the frail bark which was swallowed up rubbed for a moment along the keel of her destroyer. But this was all. Thinking our boat, which it will be remembered was dismasted, some mere shell cut adrift as useless, the captain, Captain E.T.V. Block of New London, was for proceeding on his course without troubling himself further about the manner. Luckily, there were two of the lookouts who swore positively to having seen some person at our helm, and represented the possibility of yet saving him. A discussion ensued, when Block grew angry, and after a while said that it was no business of his to be eternally watching for eggshells, that the ship would not put about for any such nonsense, and if there was any man run down, it was nobody's fault but his own, he might drown and be damned, or some language to that effect. Henderson, the first mate, now took the matter up, being justly indignant, as well as the whole ship's crew, at a speech evincing so base a degree of heartless atrocity. He spoke plainly, seeing himself upheld by the men, told the captain he considered him a fit subject for the gallows, and that he would disobey his orders if he were hanged for it the moment he set his foot on shore. He strode aft, jostling Block, who turned pale and made no answer, on one side, 
and seizing the helm gave the word in a firm voice, Hard a lee! The men flew to their posts, and the ship went cleverly about. All this had occupied nearly five minutes, and it was supposed to be hardly within the bounds of possibility that any individual could be saved, allowing any to have been on board the boat. Yet, as the reader has seen, both Augustus and myself were rescued, and our deliverance seemed to have been brought about by two of those almost inconceivable pieces of good fortune which are attributed by the wise and pious to the special interference of Providence. While the ship was yet in stays, the mate lowered the jolly boat and jumped into her with the very two men, I believe, who spoke up as having seen me at the helm. They had just left the lee of the vessel, the moon still shining brightly, when she made a long and heavy roll to windward, and Henderson, at the same moment, starting up in his seat, bawled out to his crew to back water. He would say nothing else, repeating his cry impatiently, Back water! Back water! The men put back as speedily as possible, but by this time the ship had gone round, and gotten fully under headway, though all hands on board were making great exertions to take in sail. In spite of the danger of the attempt, the mate clung to the main chains as soon as they came within his reach. Another huge lurch now brought the starboard side of the vessel out of the water, nearly as far as her keel, when the cause of his anxiety was rendered obvious enough. The body of a man was seen to be affixed in the most singular manner to the smooth and shining bottom. The penguin was coppered and copper-fastened, and beating violently against it with every movement of the hull. After several ineffectual efforts, made during the lurches of the ship, and at the eminent risk of swamping the boat, I was finally disengaged from my perilous situation and taking on board, for the body proved to be my own. It appeared that one of the timber bolts having started and broken a passage through the copper, it had arrested my progress as I started under the ship, and fastened me in so extraordinary a manner to her bottom. The head of the bolt had made its way through the collar of the green baize jacket I had on, and through the back part of my neck, forcing itself out between the two sinews and just below the right ear. I was immediately put to bed, though life seemed to be totally extinct. There was no surgeon on board. The captain, however, treated me with every attention, to make amends, I presume, in the eyes of his crew, for his atrocious behavior in the previous portion of the adventure. In the meantime, Henderson again put off from the ship, though the wind was now blowing almost a hurricane. He had not gone many minutes when he fell in with some fragments of our boat, and shortly afterwards one of the men with him asserted that he could distinguish a cry for help at intervals amid the roaring of the tempest. This induced the hardy seamen to persevere in their search for more than half an hour, although repeated signals to return were made them by Captain Block, and although every moment on the water in so frail a boat was brought to them with the most eminent and deadly peril. Indeed, it is nearly impossible to conceive how the small jolly they were in could have escaped destruction for a single instant. She was built, however, for the whaling service, and was fitted, as I have since had reason to believe, with air-boxes, in the manner of some lifeboats used on the coast of Wales. After searching in vain for about the period of time just mentioned, it was determined to get back to the ship. They had scarcely made this resolve when a feeble cry arose from a dark object that floated rapidly by. They pursued and soon overtook it. It proved to be the entire deck of the Ariel's cuddy. Augustus was struggling near it, apparently in the last agonies. Upon getting hold of him it was found that he was attached by a rope to the floating timber. This rope, it will be remembered, I had myself tied around his waist and made fast to a ring bolt for the purpose of keeping him in an upright position, and my doing so, it appeared, had been ultimately the means of preserving his life. The aerial was slightly put together, and in going down her frame naturally went to pieces. The deck of the cuddy, as might have been expected, was lifted, by the force of the water rushing in entirely from the main timbers, and floated, with other fragments, no doubt, to the surface. Augustus was buoyed up with it, and thus escaped a terrible death. It was more than an hour after being taken on board the penguin before he could give any account of himself, or be made to comprehend the nature of the accident which had befallen our boat. At length, he became thoroughly aroused, and spoke much of his sensations while in the water. 
Upon his first attaining any degree of consciousness, he found himself beneath the surface, whirling round and round with inconceivable rapidity, and with a rope wrapped in three or four folds tightly upon his neck. In an instant afterwards, he felt himself going rapidly upwards, when, his head striking violently against a hard substance, he again relapsed into insensibility. Upon once more reviving, he was in fuller possession of his reason. This was still, however, in the greatest degree clouded and confused. He now knew that some accident had occurred, and that he was in the water, although his mouth was above the surface, and he could breathe with some freedom. Possibly, at this point, the deck was drifting rapidly before the wind, and drawing him after it as he floated upon his back. Of course, as long as he could have retained this position, it would have been nearly impossible that he should be drowned. Presently a surge threw him directly athwart the deck, and this post he endeavored to maintain, screaming at intervals for help. Just before he was discovered by Mr. Henderson, he had been obliged to relax his hold through exhaustion, and, falling into the sea, had given himself up for lost. During the whole period of his struggles he had not the faintest recollection of the aerial, nor of the manners in connection with the source of his disaster. A vague feeling of terror and despair had taken entire possession of his faculties. When he finally was picked up, every power of his mind had failed him, and, as before said, it was nearly an hour after getting on board the penguin before he became fully aware of his condition. In regards to myself, I was resuscitated from a state bordering very nearly upon death, and after every other means had been tried in vain for three hours and a half, by a vigorous friction with flannels bathed in hot oil, a proceeding suggested by Augustus. The wound in my neck, although of an ugly appearance, proved of little real consequence, and I soon recovered from its effects. The penguin got into port about nine o'clock in the morning, after encountering one of the severest gales ever experienced off Nantucket. Both Augustus and myself managed to appear at Mr. Bernard's in time for breakfast, which, luckily, was somewhat late, owing to the party overnight. I suppose all at the table were too much fatigued themselves to notice our jaded appearance. Of course, it would not have borne a very rigid scrutiny. Schoolboys, however, can accomplish wonders in the way of deception, and I verily believe not one of our friends in Nantucket had the slightest suspicion that the terrible story told by some sailors in town of their having run down a vessel at sea and drowned some thirty or forty-four devils had reference either to the aerial, my companion, or myself. We, too, have since very frequently talked the matter over, but never without a shudder. In one of our conversations, Augustus frankly confessed to me that in his whole life he had at no time experienced so excruciatingly a sense of dismay as when on board our little boat he first discovered the extent of his intoxication and felt himself sinking beneath its influence. End of section one. Recording by Todd. Alan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Narrative of A. Gordon Pym, Chapter 2. In no affairs of mere prejudice, pro or con, do we deduce inferences with entire certainty, even from the most simple data. It might be supposed that a catastrophe such as I have just related would have effectually cooled my incipient passion for the sea. On the contrary, I never experienced a more ardent longing for the wild adventures incident to the life of a navigator than within a week after our miraculous loss deliverance. This short period proved amply long enough to erase from my memory the shadows 
and bring out in vivid light all the pleasurably exciting points of color, all the picturesqueness of the late perilous accident. My conversation with Augustus grew daily more frequent and more intensely full of interest. He had a manner of relating his stories of the ocean, more than one half of which I now suspect to have been sheer fabrications, well adapted to have weight with one of my enthusiastic temperament and somewhat gloomy, although glowing, imagination. It is strange, too, that he most strongly enlisted my feelings in behalf of the life of a seaman, when he depicted his more terrible moments of suffering and despair. For the bright side of the painting, I had a limited sympathy. My visions were of shipwreck and famine, of death or captivity among barbarian hordes, of a lifetime dragged out in sorrow and tears upon some gray and desolate rock, in an ocean unapproachable and unknown. Such visions or desires, for they amounted to desires, are common. I have since been assured to the whole numerous race of the melancholy among men. At the time of which I speak, I regarded them only as prophetic glimpses of a destiny which I felt myself in a measure bound to fulfill. Augustus thoroughly entered into my state of mind. It is probable, indeed, that our intimate communion had resulted in a partial interchange of character. About eighteen months after the period of Ariel's disaster, the firm of Lloyd and Brandenburg, a house connected in some manner with the Messieurs Enderby, I believe of Liverpool, were engaged in repairing and fitting out the brig Grampus for a whaling voyage. She was an old hulk and scarcely seaworthy when all was done to her that could be done. I hardly know why she was chosen in preference to other good vessels belonging to the same owners, but so it was. Mr. Barnard was appointed to command her, and Augustus was going with him. While the brig was getting ready, he frequently urged upon me the excellency of the opportunity now offered for indulging my desire of travel. He found me by no means an unwilling listener, yet the matter could not be so easily arranged. My father made no direct opposition, but my mother went into hysterics at the bare mention of the design, and, more than all, my grandfather, from whom I expected much bowed to cut me off with a shilling if I should ever broach the subject to him again. These difficulties, however, so far from abating my desire, only added fuel to the flame. I determined, 
to go at all hazards and having made known my intentions to augustus we set about arranging a plan by which it might be accomplished in the meantime i forbore speaking to any of my relations in regard to the voyage and as i busied myself ostensibly with my usual studies it was supposed that i had abandoned the design i have since frequently examined my conduct on this occasion with sentiments of displeasure as well as of surprise the intense hypocrisy i made use of for the furtherance of my project an hypocrisy pervading every word and action of my life for so long a period of time could only have been rendered tolerable to myself by the wild and burning expectation with which i looked forward to the fulfillment of my long cherished visions of travel in pursuance of my scheme of deception i was necessarily obliged to leave much to the management of augustus who was employed for the greater part of every day on board the grampus attending to some arrangements for his father in the cabin and cabin hold at night however we were sure to have a conference and talk over our hopes after nearly a month passed in this manner without our hitting upon any plan we thought likely to succeed he told me at last that he had determined upon everything necessary i had a relation living in new bedford a mr ross at whose house i was in the habit of spending occasionally two or three weeks at a time the brig was to sail about the middle of june june eighteen twenty seven and it was agreed that a day or two before her putting to sea my father was to receive a note as usual from mr ross asking me to come over and spend a fortnight with robert and emmet his sons augustus charged himself with the inditing of this note and getting it delivered having set out as supposed for new bedford i was then to report myself to my companion who would contrive a hiding place for me in the grampus this hiding place he assured me could be rendered sufficiently comfortable for a residence of many days during which i was not to make my appearance when the brig had proceeded so far on her course as to make any turning back a matter out of question i should then he said be formally installed in all the comforts of the cabin and as to his father he would only laugh heartily at the joke vessels enough would be met with by which a letter might be sent home explaining the adventure to my parents 
The middle of June at length arrived, and everything had been matured. The note was written and delivered, and on a Monday morning I left the house for the new Bedford packet, as supposed. I went, however, straight to Augustus, who was waiting for me at the corner of a street. It had been our original plan that I should keep out of the way until dark, and then sleep on board the brig. But, as there was now a thick fog in our favor, it was agreed to lose no time in secreting me. Augustus led the way to the wharf, and I followed at a little distance, enveloped in a thick seaman's cloak, which he had brought with him so that my person might not be easily recognized. Just as we turned the second corner after passing Mr. Edmond's well, who should appear, standing right in front of me and looking me full in the face, but old Mr. Peterson, my grandfather. Why, bless my soul, Gordon, said he, after a long pause, why, why, whose dirty cloak is that that you have on? Sir, I replied, assuming as well as I could in the exigency of the moment an air of offended surprise, and talking in the gruffest of all imaginable tones. Sir, you are somewhat mistaken. My name, in the first place, be nothing at all like cotton. And I'd want you, for to know better, you blackguard, than to call my new overcoat a dirty one. For my life I could hardly refrain from screaming with laughter at the odd manner in which the old gentleman received this handsome rebuke. He started back two or three steps, turned first pale and then excessively red threw up his spectacles, then, putting them down, ran full tilt at me, with his umbrella uplifted. He stopped short, however, in his career, as if struck with a sudden recollection, and presently, turning around, hobbled off down the street, shaking all the while with rage and muttering between his teeth. One, two new classes thought it was courtened good for nothing salt water long tom after this narrow escape we proceeded with greater caution and arrived at our point of destination in safety there were only one or two of the hands on board and these were busy forward doing something to the forecastle combings Captain Barnard, we knew very well, was engaged at Lloyd and Brandenburg's, and would remain there until late in the evening, so we had little to apprehend on his account. Augustus went first up the vessel's side, and in a short while I followed him, without being noticed by the men at work. We proceeded at once into the cabin, and found no person there. 
it was fitted up in the most comfortable style a thing somewhat unusual in a whaling vessel there were four very excellent state rooms with wide and convenient berths there was also a large stove i took notice and a remarkably thick and valuable carpet covering the floor on both the cabin and state rooms the ceiling was full seven feet high and in short everything appeared of a more roomy and agreeable nature than i had anticipated augustus however would allow me but little time for observation insisting upon the necessity of my concealing myself as soon as possible he led the way into his own state-room which was on the starboard side of the brig and next to the bulkheads upon entering he closed the door and bolted it i thought i had never seen a nicer little room than the one in which i now found myself it was about ten feet long and had only one berth which as i said before was wide and convenient in that portion of the closet nearest the bulkheads there was a space of four feet square containing a table a chair and a set of hanging shelves full of books chiefly books of voyages and travels there were many other little comforts in the room among which i ought not to forget a kind of safe or refrigerator in which augustus pointed out to me a host of delicacies both in the eating and drinking department he now pressed with his knuckles upon a certain spot of the carpet in one corner of the space just mentioned letting me know that a portion of the flooring about sixteen inches square had been neatly cut out and again adjusted as he pressed this portion rose up at one end sufficiently to allow the passage of his finger beneath in this manner he raised the mouth of the trap to which the carpet was still fastened by tacks and i found that it led into the after hold he next lit a small taper by means of a phosphorus match and placing the light in a dark lantern descended with it through the opening bidding me to follow i did so and he then pulled the cover upon the hole by means of a nail driven into the underside the carpet of course resuming its original position on the floor of the stateroom and all traces of the aperture being concealed the taper gave out so feeble a ray that it was with the greatest difficulty I could grope my way through the confused mass of lumber among which I now found myself. By degrees, however, 
my eyes became accustomed to the gloom and i proceeded with less trouble holding on to the skirts of my friend's coat he brought me at length after creeping and winding through innumerable narrow passages to an iron-bound box such as is used sometimes for packing fine earthenware it was nearly four feet high and full six long but very narrow two large empty oil casks lay on top of it and above this again a vast quantity of straw of matting piled up as high as the floor of the cabin in every other direction around was wedged as closely as possible even up to the ceiling a complete chaos of almost every species of ship furniture together with a heterogeneous medley of crates hampers barrels and bales so that it seemed a matter no less than miraculous that we have discovered any passage at all to the box i afterward found that augustus had purposely arranged the stowage in this hold with a view to affording me a thorough concealment having had only one assistant in the labor a man not going out in the brig my companion now showed me that one of the ends of the box could be removed at pleasure he slipped it aside and displayed the interior at which i was excessively amused a mattress from one of the cabin birds covered the whole of its bottom and it contained almost every article of mere comfort which could be crowded into so small a space allowing me at the same time sufficient room for my accommodation either in a sitting position or lying at full length among other things there were some books pen ink and paper three blankets a large jug full of water a keg of sea biscuit three or four immense bologna sausages an enormous ham a cold leg of roast mutton and half a dozen bottles of cordials and liquors i proceeded immediately to take possession of my little apartment and this with feelings of higher satisfaction i am sure that any monarch ever experienced upon entering a new palace augustus now pointed out to me the method of fastening the open end of the box and then holding the taper close to the deck showed me a piece of dark whipcord lying along it this he said extended from my hiding place throughout all the necessary windings among the lumber to a nail which was driven into the deck of the hold immediately beneath the trap-door leading into his state-room by means of this cord i should be enabled readily to trace my way out without his guidance 
provided any unlooked-for accident should render such a step necessary. He now took his departure, leaving me with the lantern, together with a copious supply of tapers and phosphorus, and promising to pay me a visit as often as he could contrive to do so without observation. This was on the 17th of June. I remained three days and nights, as nearly as I could guess, in my hiding place without getting out of it at all, except twice for the purpose of stretching my limbs and standing erect between two crates just opposite the opening. During the whole period I saw nothing of Augustus, but this occasioned me little uneasiness, as I knew the brig was expected to put to sea every hour, and in the bustle he would not easily find opportunities of coming down to me. At length I heard the trap open and shut, and presently he called in a low voice, asking if all was well, and if there was anything I wanted. Nothing, I replied. I am as comfortable as can be. When will the brig sail? She will be under way in less than half an hour, he answered. I came to let you know, and for fear you should be uneasy at my absence, I shall not have a chance of coming down again for some time, perhaps for three or four days more. All is going on right above board. After I go up and close the trap, do you creep along by the whip cord to where the nail is driven in. You will find my watch there. It may be useful to you, as you have no daylight to keep time by. I suppose you can't tell how long you have been buried. Only three days. This is the twentieth. I would bring the watch to your box, but I am afraid of being missed. With this he went up. In about an hour after he had gone, I distinctly felt the brig in motion, and congratulated myself upon having at length fairly commenced a voyage. Satisfied with this idea, I determined to make my mind as easy as possible, and await the course of events until I should be permitted to exchange the box for the more roomy, although hardly more comfortable, accommodations of the cabin. My first care was to get the watch. Leaving the taper burning, I groped along in the dark, following the cord through windings innumerable, in some of which I discovered that, after toiling a long distance, I was brought back within a foot or two of a former position. At length I reached the nail, and securing the object of my journey, returned with it in safety. I now looked over the books which had been so thoughtfully provided, and selected the expedition of Lewis and Clark to the mouth of the Columbia. With this I amused myself for some time, when, growing sleepy, 
I extinguished the light with great care, and soon fell into a sound slumber. Upon awakening, I felt strangely confused in mind, and some time elapsed before I could bring to recollection all the various circumstances of my situation. By degrees, however, I remembered all. Striking a light, I looked at the watch, but it was run down, and there were consequently no means of determining how long I slept. My limbs were greatly cramped, and I was forced to relieve them by standing between the crates. Presently feeling an almost ravenous appetite, I bethought myself of the cold mutton, some of which I had eaten just before going to sleep, and found excellent. What was my astonishment in discovering it to be in a state of absolute putrefaction? This circumstance occasioned me great disquietude, for connecting it with the disorder of mind I experienced upon awakening, I began to suppose that I must have slept for an inordinately long period of time. The close atmosphere of the hall might have something to do with this, and might, in the end, be productive of the most serious results. My head ached excessively, I fancied that I drew every breath with difficulty, and in short I was oppressed with a multitude of gloomy feelings. Still I could not venture to make any disturbance by opening the trap or otherwise and having wound up the watch, contented myself as well as possible. Throughout the whole of the next tedious twenty-four hours, no person came to my relief, and I could not help accusing Augustus of the grossest inattention. What alarmed me chiefly was that the water in my jug was reduced to about half a pint, and I was suffering from much thirst. Having eaten freely of the Bologna sausages after the loss of my mutton, I became very uneasy and could no longer take any interest in my books. I was overpowered, too, with a desire to sleep, yet trembled at the thought of indulging it, lest there might exist some pernicious influence, like that of burning charcoal in the confined air of the hold. In the meantime, the roll of the brig told me that we were far in the main ocean, and a dull humming sound, which reached my ears as if from an immense distance, convinced me no ordinary gale was blowing. I could not imagine a reason for the absence of Augustus. We were surely far enough advanced on our voyage to allow of my going up. Some accident might have happened to him, but I could think of none which could account for his suffering me to remain so long a prisoner, except, indeed, his having suddenly died or fallen overboard, and upon this idea I could not dwell with any degree of patience. It was possible that we had been baffled by head winds and were still in the near vicinity of Nantucket. This notion, however, I was forced to abandon, for such being the case, the brig must have frequently gone about, and I was entirely satisfied 
from her continual inclination to the larboard that she had been sailing all along with a steady breeze on her starboard quarter besides granting that we were still in the neighborhood of the island why should not augustus have visited me and informed me of the circumstance pondering in this manner upon the difficulties of my solitary and cheerless condition i resolved to wait yet another twenty-four hours when if no relief were obtained i would make my way to the trap and endeavor either to hold a parley with my friend or get at least a little fresh air through the opening and a further supply of water from the stateroom while occupied with this thought however i fell in spite of every exertion to the contrary into a state of profound sleep or rather a stupor my dreams were of the most terrific description every species of calamity and horror befell me among other miseries i was smothered to death between huge pillows by demons of the most ghastly and ferocious aspect immense serpents held me in their embrace and looked earnestly in my face with their fearfully shining eyes then deserts limitless and of the most forlorn and awe-inspiring character spread themselves out before me immensely tall trunks of trees gray and leafless rose up in endless succession as far as the eye could reach the roots were concealed in wide-spreading morasses whose dreary water lay intensely black still and altogether terrible beneath and the strange trees seemed endowed with a human vitality and waving to and from their skeleton arms were crying to the silent waters for mercy in the shrill and piercing accents of the most acute agony and despair the scene changed and i stood naked and alone amidst the burning sand plains of sahara at my feet lay crouched a fierce lion of the tropics suddenly his wild eyes opened and fell upon me with a conclusive bound he sprang to his feet and laid bare his horrible feet in another instant there burst from his red throat a roar like the thunder of the firmament and i fell impetuously to the earth stifling in a paroxysm of terror i at last found myself partially awake my dream then was not all a dream now at least i was in possession of my senses the paws of some huge and real monster were pressing heavily upon my bosom his hot breath was in my ear and his white and ghastly fangs were gleaming upon me through the gloom had a thousand lives hung upon the movement of a limb or the utterance of a syllable i could have neither stirred nor spoken the beast whatever it was retained his position without attempting any immediate violence while i lay in an utterly helpless and i fancied a dying condition beneath him 
I felt that my powers of body and mind were fast leaving me, in a word, that I was perishing, and perishing of sheer fright. My brain swam, I grew deadly sick, my vision failed, even the glaring eyeballs above me grew dim. Making a last strong effort, I at length breathed a faint ejaculation to God, and resigned myself to die. The sound of my voice seemed to arouse all the latent fury of the animal. He precipitated himself at full length upon my body. But what was my astonishment when, with a long and low whine, he commenced licking my face and hands with the greatest eagerness and with the most extravagant demonstration of affection and joy. I was bewildered, utterly lost in amazement, but I could not forget the peculiar whine of my Newfoundland dog Tiger, and the odd manner of his caresses I well knew. It was he. I experienced a sudden rush of blood to my temples, a giddy and overpowering sense of deliverance and reanimation. I rose hurriedly from the mattress upon which I had been lying, and throwing myself upon the neck of my faithful follower and friend, relieved the long oppression of my bosom in a flood of the most passionate tears. As upon a former occasion, my conceptions were in a state of the greatest indistinctness and confusion after leaving the mattress. For a long time I found it nearly impossible to connect any ideas, but by very slow degrees my thinking faculties returned, and I again called to memory the several incidents of my condition. For the presence of Tiger I tried in vain to account, and after busying myself with a thousand different conjectures respecting him, was forced to content myself with rejoicing that he was with me to share my dreary solitude, and render me comfort by his caresses. Most people love their dogs, but for Tiger I had an affection far more ardent than common, and never certainly did any creature more truly deserve it. For seven years he had been my inseparable companion, and, in a multitude of instances, had given evidence of all the noble qualities for which we value the animal. I had rescued him when a puppy from the clutches of a malignant little villain in Nantucket, who was leading him with a rope around his neck to the water, and the grown dog repaid the obligation about three years afterward by saving me from the bloodshed of a street rover. Getting now hold of the watch, I found, upon applying it to my ear, that it had again run down, but at this I was not at all surprised being convinced for the peculiar state of my feelings that I had slept as before for a very long period of time. How long? It was of course impossible to say. I was burning up with fever, 
and my thirst was almost intolerable. I felt about the box for my little remaining supply of water, for I had no light. The taper having burned to the socket of the lantern, and the phosphorus box not coming readily to hand. Upon finding the jug, however, I discovered it to be empty. Tiger, no doubt, having been tempted to drink it as well as to devour the remnant of mutton, the bone of which lay well picked by the opening of the box. The spoiled meat I could well spare, but my heart sank as I thought of the water. I was feeble in the extreme, so much so that I shook all over as with an ague at the slightest movement of exertion. To add to my troubles, the brig was pitching and rolling with great violence, and the oil casks which lay upon my box were in momentary danger of falling down, so as to block up the only way of ingress or egress. I felt also terrible sufferings from sea-sickness. This consideration determined me to make my way at all hazards to the trap and obtain immediate relief before I should be incapacitated from doing so altogether. Having come to this resolve, I again fell about for the phosphorus box and tapers. The former I found after some little trouble, but not discovering the tapers as soon as I had expected, for I remembered very nearly the spot in which I had placed them. I gave up the search for the present, and bidding Tiger lie quiet, began at once my journey toward the trap. In this attempt, my great feebleness became more than ever apparent. It was with the utmost difficulty I could crawl along at all, and very frequently my limbs sank suddenly from beneath me. When falling prostrate on my face, I could remain for some minutes in a state bordering on insensibility. Still, I struggled forward by slow degrees, dreading every moment that I should swoon amid the narrow and intricate windings of the lumber, in which event I had nothing but death to expect as a result. At length, upon making a push forward with all the energy I could command, I struck my forehead violently against the sharp corner of an iron-bound crate. The accident only stunned me for a few moments, but I found, to my inexpressible grief, that the quick and violent roll of the vessel had thrown the crate entirely across my path, so as effectually to block up the passage. With my utmost exertions, I could not move it a single inch from its position. It being closely wedged in among the surrounding boxes and ship furniture, it became necessary, therefore, enfeebled as I was, either to leave the guidance of the whipcord and seek out a new passage, or to climb over the obstacle and resume the path on the other side. The former alternative presented too many difficulties and dangers to be thought of without a shudder, 
in my present weak state of both mind and body i should infallibly lose my way if i attempted it and perish miserably amid the dismal and disgusting labyrinths of the hold i proceeded therefore without hesitation to summon up all my remaining strength and fortitude and endeavor as i best might to clamber over the crate upon standing erect with this end in view i found the undertaking even a more serious task than my fears had led me to imagine on each side of the narrow passage arose a complete wall of various heavy lumber which the least blunder on my part might be the means of bringing down upon my head or if this accident did not occur the path might be effectually blocked up against my return by the descending mass as it was in front by the obstacle there the crate itself was a long and unwieldy box upon which no foothold could be obtained in vain i attempted by every means in my power to reach the top with the hope of being thus enabled to draw myself up had i succeeded in reaching it it is certain that my strength would have proved utterly inadequate to the task of getting over and it was better in every respect that i failed at length in a desperate effort to force the crate from its ground i felt a strong vibration in the side next me i thrust my hand eagerly to the edge of the planks and found that a very large one was loose with my pocket knife which luckily i had with me i succeeded after great labor in prying it entirely off and getting it through the aperture discovered to my exceeding joy that there were no boards on the opposite side in other words that the top was wanting it being the bottom through which i had forced my way i now met with no important difficulty in proceeding along the line until i finally reached the nail with a beating heart i stood erect and with a gentle touch pressed against the cover of the trap it did not rise as soon as i had expected and i pressed it with somewhat more determination still dreading lest some other person than augustus might be in his stateroom the door however to my astonishment remained steady and i became somewhat uneasy for i knew that it had formerly required but little or no effort to remove it i pushed it strongly it was nevertheless firm with all my strength it still did not give way with rage with fury with despair it set at defiance my utmost effort and it was evident from the unyielding nature of the resistance that the hole had either been discovered and effectually nailed up or that some immense weight had been placed upon it which it was useless to think of removing my sensations were those of extreme horror and dismay 
in vain i attempted to reason on the probable cause of my being thus entombed i could summon up no connected chain of reflection and sinking on the floor gave way unresistingly to the most gloomy imaginings in which the dreadful deaths of thirst famine suffocation and premature interment crowded upon me as the prominent disasters to be encountered at length there returned to me some portion of presence of mind i arose i felt with my fingers for the seams or cracks of the aperture having found them i examined them closely to ascertain if they emitted any light from the state room but none was visible i then forced the blade of my pen-knife through them until i met with some hard obstacle scrapping against it i discovered it to be a solid mass of iron which from its peculiar wavy feel as i passed the blade along it i concluded to be a change cable the only course now left me was to retrace my way to the box and there either yield to my sand fate or try so to tranquilize my mind as to admit of my arranging some plan of escape i immediately set about the attempt and succeeded after innumerable difficulties in getting back as i sank utterly exhausted upon the mattress tiger threw himself at full length by my side and seemed as if desirous by his caresses of consoling me in my troubles and urging me to bear them with fortitude the singularity of his behavior at length forcibly arrested my attention after licking my face and hands for some minutes he would suddenly cease doing so and utter a low whine upon reaching out my hand toward him i then invariably found him lying on his back with his paws uplifted this conduct so frequently repeated appeared strange and i could in no manner account for it as the dog seemed distressed i concluded that he had received some injury and taking his paws in my hands i examined them one by one but found no sign of any hurt i then supposed him hungry and gave him a large piece of ham which he devoured with avidity afterward however resuming his extraordinary maneuvers i now imagined that he was suffering like myself the torments of thirst and was about adopting this conclusion as the true one when the idea occurred to me that i had as yet only examined his paws and that there might possibly be a wound upon some portion of his body or head the latter i felt carefully over but found nothing on the passing my hand however along his back i perceived a slight erection of the hair extending completely across it probing this with my finger i discovered a string and tracing it up found that it encircled the whole body upon a closer scrutiny i came across a small slip of what had the feeling of letter paper 
through which the string had been fastened in such a manner as to bring it immediately beneath the left shoulder of the animal. End of section 2 Recording by Gabby Cowan in Kingston, Ontario, Canada